Well, good morning again, and welcome to Grumlaw. We are so glad that you are here today. Seriously, we're so glad that you decided to make uh, Grumlaw a part of your Mother's Day celebration. And seriously, happy Mother's Day to all you moms out there. I really mean that. About once a week, I am tasked with watching both of my children for about a 30-minute period, and it is toughest 30 minutes of my week. I'm just like frantically pacing around the house like, when is my wife going to get home? I have no idea how she does it all day, every day with those kids. It's unbelievable. So seriously, moms, uh, we don't say thanks enough. We don't express enough gratitude to you guys. You guys are awesome. So thank you, thank you, thank you for being incredible moms. Yeah, you can certainly clap for that. If it's your first time with us, we just want to extend to you a very special welcome. I say this almost every single week, but I really do mean it. We know that walking into a new place, it can feel intimidating. It can certainly feel risky, but we're so glad that you decided to take that risk and show up here today. And honestly, whether you want to be here or not, because I'm not dumb. I know that on days like today, some of you, you don't really want to be here. In fact, you woke up this morning and your wife gave you that look and you're like, oh crap. I think that's the look that means I have to go to church today, right? You go to church like two times a year. You come on Christmas because you think that's somehow going to buy you some good favor in heaven, and you come on Mother's Day because you think that that's maybe going to buy you some good favor in the bet. Yeah, you know what I mean by that. Anyway, uh, if you haven't already figured out, uh, we are in this series right now called Follow. In fact, this morning we are in part six of eight. If you have not been here for every week of the series, I cannot encourage you enough to please go to grumlaw.com, click on recent messages, and catch yourself up there. You can also find us under Grumlaw Church wherever it is that you grab your podcast from. We've challenged people that throughout this series to, hey, stick with us for this entire series. And if you're not able to be here on Sunday mornings, make sure you go online and you listen to those messages there. And we're confident that if you do that, God will start to do things in your life in such a way, maybe as wonky and churchy as that sounds, uh, where you actually want to come back. We'd be curious about who this Jesus guy is and why we think he is so important to every single one of our lives. Now, the premise for this series is really, really simple. A couple thousand years ago, Jesus was walking around the earth And a lot of people that he would come in contact with them, he'd look at them and he'd say, hey, why don't you start to follow me? Just begin to follow me. And as we've discovered over the last five weeks of this series is that one, being a sinner is actually a prerequisite. Having doubts is a prerequisite. Having questions is a prerequisite. And so it's okay if you don't have all your questions answered yet. It's, It's okay if you're not even sure that Jesus was divine. Just begin to follow Jesus. And we think that you'll kind of figure that stuff out along the way. And our hope is that some of you will maybe accept that invitation this morning to begin following Jesus. Now, As we kick off here this morning, I have a confession for all of you. Um, I didn't become a Christian. I didn't become a Jesus follower for really any of the reasons that we've talked about over the first five weeks. I I did not become a Jesus follower because I was so enamored with Jesus and I was just like, I have to follow this guy. I didn't start following Jesus because I picked up my Bible and I was like, this just has to be real. Like, I I am totally in. I didn't even start following Jesus because I saw other people who were really in love with Jesus and I, I wanted my life to be like that. In fact, I followed Jesus, I began following Jesus for a far more selfish reason. This is why I started following Jesus, right there, yeah. Hell, I did not want to go there. I, like those of you who grew up going to church, was presented with two options. Upon death, I would either go to heaven, which they made sound good enough, or hell, which they seemed to do an incredible job at reinforcing how terrible that place was going to be. And so as a little kid, it's like, you know, you have a big person in front of you going, hey, you can either go to heaven or you can go to hell. It's like, well, heck yeah, I'm going to raise my hand. just have to say a prayer and it keeps me out of hell. I'm all for that. And honestly, it wasn't because they even made heaven sound so great. It wasn't like they had presented heaven as like this can't miss opportunity. Honestly, it was quite the opposite. That hell was presented as such a scary place that I so desperately wanted to avoid that given the opportunity at camp, or at church, or at a retreat, or at a conference, and some person standing in front of you saying, hey, you better say this prayer again. I was going to shoot my hand up. 
along with a whole lot of other kids because again, I wanted to avoid hell. And again, it had nothing to do with my love for God. It didn't even have anything to do with a love for Jesus. If I'm being brutally honest this morning, it had everything to do with a love for me, a love that I had for myself. It was a self-preservation tactic because after all, I was a Jesus consumer, a Jesus consumer, which is why I probably accepted Jesus like a dozen different times into my life. I said that sinner's prayer like when I was five years old sitting at the dinner table with my mom until I got into high school. I probably said about 12 times in between then because again, I would go to these camps and this guy would be really intense and speaking really loud and it's kind of freaking you out as a little kid. And at the end of these retreats or at the end of a camp, I mean, it is like clockwork. I can guarantee you go to a Christian camp, you go to a Christian retreat on the last night, there's going to be some intense person standing in front of you saying, raise your hand if you want to accept Jesus into your life. And all these kids are like, and I would sit there after the first time. I was like, well, I don't need to do that because I did that the year before. But then the guy would get into his prayer a little bit and I'd be like, that sounds different from last year. (laughs) What What if this guy has different words? What if there's like a new way? And before I knew it, I was shooting my hand up again, ready to accept Jesus for the first time for the eighth time, all again, because I wanted to avoid hell. And guess what? That worked out just fine for me, which again is why I got into it in the first place. It was a self-preservation tactic. The truth is, for every single one of you that are sitting here today that identify that you would call yourself a Christian, that's kind of all of our stories. We all become Christians, every single one of us. We become a Jesus follower, at least initially, because of what Jesus can hopefully do for us, for what we can get out of it. We've talked about this in previous weeks. Even if you're not even totally sure that Jesus was divine, if you follow the teachings of Jesus, it'll make you a better person. You'll be a better husband, I guarantee it. You'll be a better wife. You'll be a better parent. You'll be a better boss. You'll be kinder. You'll be more compassionate. You'll be more forgiving. You'll be a more of a loving person. All around, you will be a better person. It will truly make your life better. And this isn't a new thing. Even Jesus' initial disciples, the apostles we sometimes refer to them as, Jesus' 12 best friends, the guys that spent virtually every waking moment with Jesus, they started following him initially because of what they could get out of it. They were looking at Jesus going, what's in it for me? In fact, on one particular occasion, Jesus is giving this brilliant teaching about money. And he's talking about, you know, how easy it is for us to just be enamored with money. We're all familiar with that, right? Because we live in America. And he's talking about how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are sitting there and it seems like they're listening, but maybe they're not listening because Peter lets this come flying out of his mouth. He goes, we've given up everything to follow you. What are we going to get? Hey, Jesus. What are we getting? What's in it for us? I mean, we've really sacrificed a lot for you, Jesus. What are we going to get out of it? I mean, because you're great and all, and you do some pretty cool stuff. I mean, that whole walking on water thing, that was like, whoo. I mean, you're incredible. Your teachings are really captivating. But at the end of this, there's, there's a reward, right? Right? But as we talked about last week, eventually we have to decide, am I a consumer or am I a follower? Am I a consumer or am I a follower? Am I a true Jesus follower or am I just a Jesus consumer? Because eventually, every single one of us, if you make that decision to follow Jesus, you're gonna come to these fork in the road moments where Jesus' way and your way are going to be completely different. And Jesus is nudging you to go one direction and then the world and society and yourself, you kind of want to head in a different direction. In those moments, you have to decide, okay, am I actually a Jesus follower? Or am I just a Jesus consumer? And if you decide to take that step and become a Jesus follower, it means that you have to start saying no to you. You have to give up your own way. 
You have to deny yourself. Anyone put that into practice this last week? You know, start saying no to yourself, anyone? Great. One hand. Last week we had four people raise their hand in this moment when I said, hey, did you apply this stuff again? So it's very invigorating for us communicators. It's inspiring stuff. Now, one of the more interesting things as it relates to uh, Jesus' disciples, on the night when Jesus was arrested, uh, he was arrested in this place called the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's like super chaotic and out of nowhere. There's all these people coming around, these soldiers holding torches. It's at night, kind of all chaos breaks loose. It's going crazy. In that moment when Jesus is arrested, every single one of his disciples, all 12 of them, they all run away like cowards. I mean, they are so quick to abandon Jesus. Every single one of them unfollowed Jesus. And why did they do that? Because they were consumers, not actual followers. They were all about what was in it for them. And as soon as their lives were threatened because of Jesus, they were out. They couldn't have been less interested in following Jesus. But what's so interesting is that if you keep reading this stuff for yourself, and I would challenge you to do that, don't ever take just my word for it. Actually, go start to read this stuff for yourself. But if you keep reading, by the end of the New Testament, by the end of the Bible, they're all back. These guys that were just so quick to leave Jesus high and dry, they're all back. And suddenly, the same cowards that were so quick to head for the hills and abandon Jesus, they're back, ready to spread the name of Jesus all throughout the surrounding area. They're ready to die for Jesus. Well, what happened? It wasn't because of anything they learned. It was because they saw a risen Jesus. They saw their resurrected Savior. And no longer were they just consumers, but they were true followers, willing to throw away their own agendas for the name of Jesus. But there was one disciple, one of Jesus' followers, one of the apostles, that did not make the transition quite so well. And my guess is, is that you've probably heard of this guy. Whether this is your first time in a church or you've been coming to church your entire life. Here he is, Judas. Now, if you grew up going to church, just seeing the name of Judas kind of makes you, whew, right, like shudder, cringe, right? Because after all, this is the dirt bag that was one of Jesus' 12 best friends, but he was the one that would betray Jesus. Last week, we learned about the meaning of Messiah or Christ. They're actually synonymous terms. Messiah is a Jewish term. Christ is a Greek term. They both mean the exact same thing. They mean the anointed one or the one that God would send. And... Um, the Jewish narrative for the Messiah went something like this, that eventually God was going to raise up this great Jewish leader and that guy was going to come along and in a very dramatic way, he was going to overthrow the Roman government and eventually that Jewish individual was going to sit on the throne and that Jewish person, that Jewish man was going to become king. And for Judas, Jesus was always a means to an end. See, he started following Jesus because of what he could get out of it. Like, we all start following Jesus, but it always continued to kind of spiral out of control from there. Judas looked at Jesus and said, okay, I think you're the Messiah. It sure seems like you really are the one that God would send. And eventually, that means that you're going to sit on the throne. Eventually, you're going to be like the guy. And I know that, like, I won't be able to sit on the throne. I'm not going to be the king. I'm not going to be the guy, but I'll be like one of the guys. Because I'll be one of your close friends. Like, I'll have some real power. I'll have some real authority. I mean, I'll really be someone. But Judas always had some problems with Jesus. For Judas, Jesus just moved too slow. Jesus would go around slowly from town to town. He was always spending time with, with the people that the rest of the world would reject. Prostitutes and tax collectors and sick people, and in fact, he seemed to make it a habit to intentionally tick off the people that had influence, the religious leaders and the people that worked for the government. And when they would come around, he was always too passive. 
He was so quick to demonstrate his power to these sick people and to the people that had no influence in the world, but as soon as these people that had real power, the people that Jesus, in his mind, should have been sucking up to, it's like he shut down. And so Judas becomes more and more frustrated. He's getting more and more impatient. And eventually, there was an event that occurred in Bethany, as we'll learn this morning. It was the last straw for Judas. He simply could not take it anymore. And I want to share that story with you this morning. And here's why. And I don't mean this to offend anyone, but I think there's a little Judas in all of us. I think we all have a little bit inside of us that Jesus is just a means to an end. In fact, it's why some of you are here today. Because things aren't going particularly well in your life. And you're not exactly sure what the formula is, but you're like, I don't know. Maybe if I show up here two or three times and start praying before every meal and I'll even get the Bible off, you know, the book cabinet and I'll dust that off. I'll read that a little bit and drop a 20 in the bucket. You see that, God? 20. And then maybe God will start paying attention to you. Maybe God will solve your problems. And you think that way because you're a consumer. And that's okay because, again, we all start there. So we're going to jump into the story right here. And again, this, this is just the last straw for Judas. We're going to jump in here into Matthew chapter 26, verse 6. Matthew is the very first book of the New Testament, the second half of the Bible. It's one of the gospel books. It's one of the books that documents Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. We pick up real, right there. It says, Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. Well, we don't have to worry about that anymore. While he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume and poured it over his head. Now, if that happened today, if I walked up to one of you and I dumped perfume on your head, you'd be quite angry with me. In fact, growing up, me and I have two brothers, we would go through like department stores with my dad, and my dad taught us this trick. We would just hose each other with perfume. We'd go through the sample section, and you just go out, right? It ticks you off, right? But back then, like, it was actually a sign of honor and respect. It said the disciples were indignant when they saw this, but they weren't mad because they thought this woman was like pranking Jesus. They said, what a waste, It could have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. Now, let's try to put ourselves in in, in this home, in this moment. Can you imagine how incredibly awkward the disciples have just made this moment, right? Like, this would be like you inviting someone over to your house, like you invite a new couple over to your house, maybe they just move in on the street, maybe you meet them here at church. Say, why don't you come over to our house? And you get the house, like, you know, we we clean up our houses when first-time guests come over, right? We make everything look really nice, and you pull out all your expensive flatware and china that your grandparents have. Like, us millennials, we don't really have china anymore. We don't really get that idea. But you have it because somebody gave it to you, right? And upon sitting down, you know, the, the, the guy, you know, picks up the fork, and he's like, is this real silver? And you're like, yeah, it's real silver. He's like, how dare you? You should have sold this and given the money to the poor. You'd be like, geez. I make it so awkward because you'd be looking around going, well, what else are they judging us for? Honey, go cover the television. We definitely don't want them to see that. It would have been so awkward. Now, this is Matthew's account, and this is the account that I kind of grew up with. This is the part of the story that I was familiar with. Now, one of the incredible things about the Gospels, again, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all tell the same story. They're all talking about Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. And they're just told from four different individuals' perspectives. And so oftentimes, these stories, there's overlap. One guy tells the story, and then another guy will tell the story. And that's the case here. John also tells us this account, but John gives us a little bit more detail that Matthew, for whatever reason, leaves out. He says this. He says, but Judas Iscariot, okay, the dirtbag, the disciple who would soon betray him said, that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold, and the money given to the poor. Okay, so it wasn't like all 12 disciples. It was Judas. 
Judas is sitting there at the table going, hey, Bartholomew, you see that? Yeah, it's perfume. You know how much that stuff cost? No idea, Judas. It's a lot. Here's wages. Keep that in mind. Hey, Philip, you know how much that perfume was worth? Yeah, year's wages. Could have sold it and give it to the poor. Right? He's going around. He's kind of planting the seed in all the disciples' heads. But not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. See, when Jesus got the disciples together, Judas shoots his hand up and he's like, hey, I'll be treasurer. And they're looking around going, I guess that's good. We're not going to let Matthew be treasurer. I mean, he was a tax collector. We doubt that Thomas can add. Really lame Christian humor there. All right. Anyway, right? So anyway, Judas was in charge of the money because Judas, much like a church, some of you, you're like, I have no idea why people are laughing. That's a good thing. It's like the lamest joke ever. All right. Anyway, Judas is in charge of the money. Jesus and his disciples, they relied on the donations of other people, money, food, etc. right? And, and Judas was the one that would collect it and, and kind of divvy it up among the disciples and to Jesus. But he would always keep a little bit for himself. So in this particular situation, he doesn't actually care about the poor, no, he's sitting there watching this going, gosh, dang it, we really missed an opportunity. If only that woman had come and given us the perfume, I could have sold that for so much money, which would have meant that I would have gotten a pretty decent payday. Now remember, Jesus knew the hearts of men. In fact, we have all these different accounts throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel books, uh, where people are thinking something, or, or are they thinking a question? And they wouldn't say it out loud in any way. They wouldn't whisper it to anyone. And Jesus would answer the question that they were thinking in their heads. Now imagine how intimidating it would be to be around Jesus all the time, right? Like a good-looking woman walks by, and you, your mind starts watering, and then Jesus, oh crap, Jesus is here. I've got to get this out of my head. It would be like kind of scary. I mean, he knew the hearts of men. He knew what was going on in people's heads. But Jesus, aware of this, replied, why criticize this woman for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. She has poured this perfume on me to prepare my body for burial, which Peter, he's sitting there going, good grief, here we go again, Jesus. You're all about doom and gloom these days, all about you dying. Relax. He says, to tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. Now, this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but how crazy is that? We this morning, sitting here in Grand Blanc, Michigan, are a part of fulfilling this prediction. Can you imagine sitting in that room and how ridiculous this statement would have sounded? Wherever the good news, I mean, whenever they talk about me, Jesus, you haven't traveled but 30 miles from your hometown, but you're saying somehow your message of you is going to get around to the entire world. And whenever they talk about you, this woman's deed is going to be remembered and discussed, right? I mean, they had to be rolling their eyes thinking, good grief, here we go again, Jesus, another one of your classic exaggerations. But yet, yet, here we are on the other side of the world, not 20 years later, not hundreds of years later, thousands of years later, and we're talking about this woman. We're talking about her deed. Pretty crazy coincidence, right? Then, then, as in like immediately after that, as in Judas couldn't handle it anymore. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, went to the leading priest and he asked, how much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? He had had enough. He's going, okay, Jesus, if you're just going to start wasting money, if you're just going to start throwing money away, 
If you're going to allow basically a year's worth of wages to just be poured over your head, if you're going to keep moving so slow, if you're not going to make your move as king, then I am done. I'm done. And so he goes to the priest and he says, hey, I think I can help you with the problem. I think I can help you get to Jesus. Now, it wasn't that they couldn't find Jesus. In fact, finding Jesus was incredibly, incredibly easy. You just found the biggest crowd, and then Jesus was going to be plucked right in the middle of it. But here was their issue. If they saw Jesus and they saw the crowd, they would have to go, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Jesus, you're arrested. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Lead them back out. And there would have been a mob. Because those people that had shown up to see Jesus, they wanted to be healed by him. They liked his teachings. They were a part of his fan club. It would have gotten them killed. No, their issue was, is they couldn't find Jesus when there wasn't a ton of people around him. And Judas says, I can help you with that. Because I'm one of his people. I'm one of his best friends. And believe it or not, we don't always hang out with tons of other people. And I can let you know when that happens. So how much are you willing to pay me for that? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. And from that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. How ludicrous of a statement is that? I mean, it's like, Judas, how stupid are you? Have you not been paying attention Do you you not remember the time when you were stranded out at sea and a storm came out of nowhere and you thought you were going to drown, but then you woke up Jesus and he went, shh, and the weather listened to him? I mean, the the weather responded to his command? Do you not remember that one day we were walking along and, and that guy came running up to us who had been blind from birth? And Jesus put mud all over his eyes and that was a little weird, but then he said, go rinse it off. And when he rinsed it off, he suddenly could see. Judas, do you not remember all the times where people were thinking questions? They never said them out loud. And Jesus would come out and answer their internal thoughts. Are are you seriously that arrogant? Do you seriously think that highly of yourself that you are going to find an opportunity to betray Jesus? Now, when I frame it in that context, I know it sounds ridiculous. But let's be honest. Don't we all kind of do this? I mean, think about how we treat God sometimes. We think we can manipulate and somehow get God to do our bidding when we want it on our time. And then when we're done with them, we say, okay, you go back over to your corner and I'll grab you again when I need you. Because after all, you're on-demand God. I'm not taking you on spring break. <laughs> no. But when it comes time for finals week, yeah, I need you then. You better show up. I'm not taking you on that business trip. No, that wouldn't look good. But, but when it comes time for the promotion, I'm going to need you then, so you better show up. I mean, everything's going pretty smooth in my life right now. But as soon as he gets sick again, as soon as she gets sick again, as soon as I get sick again, I'm going to need you then, Jesus. Things are going pretty good right now. But eventually, I'm going to need you again, and you better show up. And so, Judas is about to learn a lesson right now the hard way that I hope, and my prayer this week has been, that we can learn the easy way. And that's this. It's that God's hand can't be forced. And God's will cannot be stopped. God's hand cannot be forced. It cannot be coerced. His will cannot be stopped. It cannot be thwarted. For thousands of years, people far more intelligent than I, theologians, have tried to figure out, okay, why would Judas do this? 
I mean, why would Judas betray Jesus, a guy that he had a pretty good suspicion was the Messiah, the chosen one? Why would he set out on such a ridiculous mission? And the best as we can tell is that Judas somehow thought he could get Jesus to come out and recognize and remind him, hey, you remember, you're the Messiah. Now it's time to become king. Like, let's get going. It's time to get moving. Jesus, you are moving too dang slow. Let's get cooking. I'm going to speed you up a little bit. And in fact, you might look back on this and thank me for it. That by handing Jesus over to his enemies, it would somehow kind of wake him up. Because surely Jesus wouldn't allow anything bad to happen to himself. In fact, we have all these different accounts, again, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where the leading priests and the government officials, they're very, very close to grabbing Jesus. And as you read it, it's almost like these suspenseful moments where you get the idea that maybe they were like inches away from getting Jesus, but he just seemed to slip through their fingers. And Judas thought it would just be another one of those times. He thought this would almost scare Jesus into making his move as king. And so Judas finally sees his opportunity in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus tells him, hey, we're going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's just going to be me and you guys, just the 13 of us. We're going to go spend some time in prayer. Judas sneaks away. He goes back to the high priest. He says, hey, this is your opportunity. It's going to be at night. It's going to be dark. There's not going to be a lot of people around. Make sure you bring torches, bring a lot of soldiers. It's going to be chaotic. And just because I don't want you arresting the wrong guy, because again, everybody's going to be moving around. I'm going to go right up to Jesus and I'm going to give him a kiss on the cheek. I'm going to greet him with a kiss. Make sure that you arrest that guy. Don't botch this up. What was he thinking? But his plan works. And they arrest Jesus. And every single one of his disciples, his 12 best friends, they all run away like cowards, including Judas. It says, very early in the morning, the leading priests and the elders of the people met again to lay plans for putting Jesus to death. They weren't interested in having a trial. They'd already had that trial in their heads plenty of times before that. He was already guilty. Then they bound him, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. And Judas did not see that coming. Go back to that slide, Garrett. He did not think that they would take him to the Roman governor. See, Judas figured that he would be tried in the Jewish law system. And in the Jewish law system, there was no ability to put somebody to death. But because the, the, those Jewish leaders and priests had, had, had harbored up so much animosity and anger towards Jesus, they intentionally passed him off to the Roman governor, hoping that he would get convicted there, and then they would have the ability to put him to death. See, Judas figured it would just kind of scare Jesus into making his move, into, into coming out and showing everyone who he really was. But now Jesus is facing death. And again, Judas didn't see that coming, and his whole plan starts to unravel. It says, when Judas, who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with remorse. So he took the 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priests and the elders. I have sinned, for I have betrayed an innocent man he finally realizes what he has done. And they reply to him, what do we care? Judas, that is very much your problem. That's a you issue. You should have thought about that a little bit more before you came to us. Remember, we didn't approach you, not our problem. And now Judas wants to back up. He wants to undo. And we've all learned this lesson at certain points in our lives. There are certain decisions that once we make them, they can't be unmade. 
There are certain ships that once they have sailed, there is no getting them back. They cannot be undone. You can absolutely be forgiven, but the damage is already done. It says, then Judas threw the silver coins down in the temple and he went out and he hanged himself. There are decisions, and again, we know this, that we've all made that are really, really, really difficult to live with. And for Judas, this was a decision that was impossible to live with. And so he took his own life. So Jesus has been arrested and soon will be crucified, will soon be murdered. Judas has taken his own life and all of Jesus' closest friends have abandoned him. But still, God's hand can't be forced and his will cannot be stopped. And in this crazy almost unbelievable Hollywood-type ending, Judas, in his attempt to force the will of God, becomes an accidental player in the story of my salvation and in the story of your salvation. He becomes an accidental player in the story of our salvation. And God's will is actually accomplished through the horrible decision-making of Judas because his will can't be forced. His hand can't be forced, and his will cannot be stopped. And so, as we wrap up this morning, what does that have to do with me, and what does it have to do with you? See, every single one of us, we all have a plan, right? We, we all have a plan for our lives, and we love to hold on to that plan very, very, very tightly. And, and we arrogantly tell God, God, we don't really care if this is your plan. We don't really care if this is your will, but you better help us out. And along the way, if you make that decision to follow Jesus, he starts to pry our fingers open. And we figure out that there is often an enormous difference between God's will and our will. We figure out that there's probably a little bit more of Judas inside of us than we would like to admit. That our agendas are very much competing. And in those moments, we figure out whose we really are. Do I really belong to God? We figure out, okay, am I actually a follower or am I just a consumer? And as we talked about last week, in those moments, if you decide to go God's way, the world, society, your friends, your family members, people that are even really, really close to you, they will be sure to let you know that you are a fool. Because after all, how dare you not put you first? How dare you not look out for yourself? But these are the defining moments of our lives. And it's when we say yes to God and we say no to ourselves that our relationship with God begins to grow and take us places that we never thought possible. God begins to create parameters that, that we didn't think existed. We experience a peace, a contentment, a satisfaction, a sense of fulfillment that is unattainable on our own accord. We get to a place where we say, God, I want what you want more than what I want. God, I genuinely want what you want more than what I want. But this is hard. This is really, really difficult. And honestly, it's kind of scary because we have no idea where it's going to take us. 
and it'll feel like we have to give up control, which, mind you, you didn't really have in the first place, but still, right? That's a difficult thing to do. We love to control our own destinies. This can be really, really difficult. And so I'm going to make it even easier on you this morning, all right? You can just thank me later, all right? God, I want to want what you want more than what I want. If I'm honest, God, I don't actually want what you want more than what I want, but I want to. How's that? Because isn't it true that we admire people like this? Isn't it true that we look at the lives of people who consistently say no to themselves and say yes to God and we go, there's something attractive about that. Whether you have a relationship with Jesus or not, whether you would call yourself a Christian or not, there's just something where you look at that and you're like, I don't think I could do that, but I think, I think that I would like to. And so here's my challenge this morning. Will you start to pray this every single day? The first thing that you do when you get out of bed, whether you call yourself a Jesus follower or not, no matter where you're at on this whole faith journey, will you start praying this every morning? Before you reach to your phone, you start looking on Facebook and Instagram. I do that too, right? Before, you know, you just start grabbing and, okay, getting your day going. The, the very first thing you do when your alarm goes off, when you hear your kids wailing in the other room, you take 30 seconds and you just go, Heavenly Father, I want to want what you want for my life more than what I want. Will you make that commitment? Will you start praying this every day? And I'm confident that God will answer that prayer. And when that next moment comes and you're going, oh my gosh, I don't want to do that, whatever that is for you, move out, move in. Say no to the promotion. Say yes to the promotion. Buy that. Don't buy that. Whatever that is for you, if you start praying for this, I am confident that you will start to lean God's direction rather than your own. Which, by the way, is an incredible place to be because God's hand cannot be forced and his will cannot be stopped. Judas, as hard as he tried, could not stop the will of God. He could not force God's hand. You know what's pretty crazy? Is that Jesus did not stop Judas from doing what he intended to do. And I have a sneaking suspicion that he won't stop you from doing what you intend to do. And I think that should scare our hands open. Because I would much rather be for God than against him. Because his hand can't be forced. And his will cannot be stopped. And because he loves you, like you, specifically you, so much, he invites you to follow him. Follow. Follow him into his plan. Into his will. His will that cannot be stopped.